The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Kester, the captain. If you can hear me, please report to engineering. What happened? It's a long story, but I think everything's all right now. Is that who's responsible for all this? Apparently. He looks so harmless. It's hard to believe he almost destroyed us. Why did you do this to us? Because I can. Is it just telepathy? Or is there technology involved? Does it matter? It matters to me. Because I don't intend to let you continue preying on others. How would you propose to stop me? We could destroy your technology. Or adjust your brainwave patterns to prevent telepathy. And then we could turn you over to the government of Mithrin. We could even keep you confined in our brig behind a force field. I'm sure you're very well-intentioned, Captain. And I'd like to be able to accommodate you. But you see, I'm not really here. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, July 3rd, 2014. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, 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 it's wrong. Not right wing. It's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join our conversation today on air. Or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org to let us know what your opinions of the show are and maybe some subjects you'd like to see us discuss, like the two we're going to be talking about today. I understand in the second half of the show, Robert, you're going to be getting into the issue of what you call sustainable communism. Is that, is that right? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually stemmed from a call we had last week. Um, didn't take it on the air, but she, uh, Kathy uh, sent mm-hmm. us an email about Agenda 21. I'm going to touch on that. And we're going to hear a bit from some of our own original material regarding uh, with Christopher Monckton on that issue as well. Yes, a fascinating lecture. Haunting stuff. And for the first half of the program, I'm going to go back into an issue that we first brought up or brought to the public's attention back on May 1st. And that was, at that time, it was Canada's upcoming anti-spam laws, which I predicted would become a news item by July 1st when the laws actually took effect and of course that has come to the major newspapers now. At the time everybody thought well this is so crazy I can't believe that's really happening. In fact most people weren't really taking the law too seriously after after all the whole idea of million and ten million dollar fines for a single spam email being sent is outrageous on its face and that's because I think the spam the spam part of the government's plan is all really BS to begin with, Robert. As I so shockingly discovered when I actually went directly to the horse's mouth to find out what it's all about. The spam is all a distraction from the horrible act that has already been perpetrated on us. <coughs> and what makes it all funny, it all ties into Canada Day as well. As Canadians proudly celebrated Canada's birthday this past Tuesday, July 1st, That very date marked the end of one of their most fundamental of freedoms. 
freedom of speech and of legitimate commercial activity within the electronic communications field. It was a despicable act, and it was done by the Harper government, which proudly takes credit for it. Bill C-30, uh, I think it was, passed in December 2010, referred to as Canada's anti-spam legislation, short for, and they call it CASEL for short, not to be confused with the television show. It is a despicable act. Or the building. Act. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, yeah. Its real name and purpose, now see if you can hear the word spam in here anywhere. Here's the actual name of the act, the law that was brought into effect. Quote, catch your breath here, an act to promote the efficiency and adaptability of the Canadian economy by regulating certain activities that discourage reliance on electronic means of carrying out commercial activities and to amend the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission Act, the Competition Act, the Personal Information Protection and Electronic Documents Act, and the Telecommunications Act. That was just the name of the act. Wow. Um, the word efficiency seemed to be the, uh, the verb that they're going by. Oh, it, it, it's... Or the adjective. It's amazing. Like, and you, you know, yeah. I haven't heard a single person from the public or business say that they like this. Not a one. I heard a lot of talk shows, and they all think it's ridiculous, and hey, it's not going to affect things that if it's outside of Canada. Yeah, it will. It affects everything. A lot of the a lot of misinformation out there. What did I always say d- describes the conservative mentality best? We want to be more efficient. Well, that's how they're pushing this. Yes, wow. and they're saying it's good for business, and it targets business and commerce. Right, and, and again, it, but just like conservatives, totally exactly. anti-business. Now, in the first quarter of our show today, I, I want to start sort of more emphasizing the basic facts about this anti-spam law, while in the second quarter we'll deal a little bit more about the truth of the matter. Now, I have to say, for starters, I personally am exempt under these new laws. Even in my commercial dealings online, I'm totally exempt, but not immune from Canada's outrageous anti-spam laws, and so I can't currently be affected by their penalties. That's because of my role with the political party. I can legally send the very kind of commercial spam that others may not, not even private citizens on their own, even a single email to an unapproved relative, for example, because Section 6 of CASEL does not apply to messages sent by political parties and candidates. Pursuant to the governor and council regulations, commercial electronic messages, CEMs, sent by or on behalf of a political party or a person who is a candidate for publicly elected office are excluded. Just to make it the short form. I could keep reading that, but there's no point in that. Yeah, that. That begs the question. Can such a candidate who is a businessman send a business email? Because it just says that the person is exempt, not the content. Well, that's an interesting distinction. <laughs> we'll <laughs> wait till somebody tests it in the courts. So I guess I've still got something to celebrate on Canada's Day, right? Yeah, you. Wrong. Mm-mm. Think about this, Robert. Whereas before... This past Canada Day, I had complete and unfettered right, and I was completely free to send out email commercial messages to anyone. Now I am only allowed to do so by permission. Now I can only do it by permission. I don't have the freedom to do it anymore. I'm no longer held responsible for the consequences of what I send. I'm just held responsible for sending it or not sending it because I don't really care about the consequences. We're now in the third day after Canada's anti-spam legislation has taken effect. On July 1st, 
the multi-million dollar fines accompanying this legislation are so unreasonable and irrational that I would personally support the criminal prosecution of the legislatures who came up with them. But uh, in their own words, as you can find on the government's own website, which is fightspam.gc.ca, they say that Canada's anti-spam legislation, CASEL, is in place to protect Canadians while ensuring that businesses can continue to compete in the global marketplace. No type of organization, it says, including charities and not-for-profit organizations, is exempt from Canada's anti-spam legislation and regulations, so you'll find a lot of exceptions to, to, to even that statement. You just can't trust any of these sentences. If you use electronic channels to promote your market or, or market your organization, products, or services, Canada's new anti-spam law may affect you. It is your duty to understand and comply with the law, it says, which I think of, you know, yes, mind, Fuhrer, duty above all. And the three questions they ask is, do you, use, do you use email, SMS, social media, or instant messaging to send commercial or promotional information about your organization? That's not even necessarily commercial. It's just promotional information about your, com your organization. To customers, prospects, or other important audiences. Do you install software programs on people's computers or mobile devices? Do you carry out these activities in or from Canada? Those are the basic qualifications to get into this. Now, as far as penalties, of course, everybody's heard that the penalties are as high as a million dollars for an individual for a single email, as high as 10 million, and everybody's scratching their head about that. But there are no automatic penalties for violations. The CRTC judges each case based on a series of factors, including the nature of the violation, your history with Castle, whether you benefited financially from the violation, and, of course, your ability to pay. That's the important one. They always talk about following the money. There are no automatic penalties. The CRTC has a range of, quote, enforcement tools available, from warnings to penalties. And, of course, we've heard that. Now here, I'm going to try to short, short form exactly what this thing is. The act itself demands that the sender of a commercial electronic message must have prior consent, whether express or implied, within a two-year period preceding the sending of the message. However, I noticed in a June 30th release by the Harper government, it says that under the new rules, I don't know what that means, express consent never expires unless the client withdraws it. So that's maybe a change coming to the already existing legislation. Once that consent has been obtained and administratively documented in some unspecified way, then there are three more legally required components that such an electronic message must contain. It must identify the sender. It must enable the recipient to respond to the sender, and it must have some means of unsubscribing to receiving future emails. Sounds reasonable on the face of it in terms of just what that is, right? No. Um, well, I mean in terms of good business practice. No. Right? Actually, I get no? uh, messages all the time for no reply. In other words, it's an automatic message mm -hmm. generated by the computer to acknowledge something, for example, a receipt from Amazon or something like that. It's a no-reply email saying, here's, here's your receipt. Don't reply to this one because you're replying to a computer, basically. Ah, interesting point. But I think that might fall under one of the many exemptions. Oh, I see. Because you've had a purchase there. But every three years, there will be more regulations and rules added to this monster that already exists under a, quote, mandatory three-year review for the anti-spam law to ensure that it reflects technological change and an, an evolving digital economy. But here is interesting. Even more telling than the new restrictions are the exemptions to the regulations. One, an interactive two-way voice communication between individuals. In other words, an old-fashioned telephone call. 
Now I understand why I get all those spam calls on my phone and nobody answers. You just get the beep, beep, and they'll only answer if you pick up. Because if they leave a message, they've broken the law. But if you pick up and they got you talking, they're in the legal parameters again. So they can drive you, drive you nuts with ah, those calls. You is see? that what's at us about? That's okay. what I seems to be. And believe it or not, you can still send a fax message, but only to a telephone account. And you can leave a voice recording, but only on a telephone account. You can't leave it on any other electronic means. Think about that. The new laws cover every conceivable form of electronic communication from voice messaging, email, Facebook, text messaging, social media, or, quote, other forms of electronic communication, as CRTC Chairman Jean-Pierre Blay put it. Our goal, says Blay, quote, that electronic communication comply with the rules. But what is the goal or purpose of the rules? The nebulous promote the efficiency of the marketplace rules have no purpose that is concrete or explicit, such as, say, arresting people for fraud or theft or mischief, although they talk about that a lot, which is what everybody seems to believe what's being talked about. But you've got to remember that's not what's being talked about. They're talking about legitimate commercial interests doing business. Says Industry Minister James Moore, speaking on behalf of his government agency. Canada's anti-spam law will put the interests of consumers first while ensuring that Canadian business can continue to thrive in the online marketplace, end quote. Now, I think it's not any government's right to put any one interest above the other, business or consumers. Consumers don't exist without business, and business doesn't exist without consumers. Mm-hmm. How, you know, how can you put one interest above the other? Says John Peckman, Commissioner of, the competi- of, Commissioner of Competition from the Competition Bureau, God, speaking competition. on behalf of his government agency. Together with the help of fellow federal agencies, we will work to vigorously enforce the law in order to prevent this t- kind of anti-competitive activity from occurring. End what? Quote. Where do you get that? Uh, that's what I say. Anti-competitive activity. I can't think of anything more an- anti-competitive than this castle thing. Yeah. And, says Daniel Therian, on behalf of his government agency, my office looks forward to working with our enforcement uh, partners to better protect Canadians. So there you have it, the four horsemen of the Internet. Industry Canada, the CRTC, the Competition Bureau, and the Privacy Bureau, unleashed upon us by the Harper government. Says the June 30, 2014 Government of Canada media release, Harper government delivers on commitment to protect Canadian consumers from spam and online threats. But it's not about spam and online threats. It's about commercial activity. Internet advertising, or email advertising, I would call it. Mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. And you know how easy it is to block an ad that you don't need on on an email account? That's right. It's so simple. Exactly. You block it. Click a couple of buttons, there it's gone. Now, this is interesting because the Harper government has recently been putting in this um, act against, you know, the prostitution laws we have, right? Mm -hmm. Well, these things operate on the same principle, on the prostitution principle. It's okay to have sex as long as money's not involved, or it's okay to have money as long as sex isn't involved. In this case, it's okay to spam all you want as long as there's no commercial communication involved. Mm -hmm. And I'm still getting spam. Lots of, tons of spam. Still got it now. Canadian businesses, despite their objections, remain rugged compliers to these totalitarian laws, even with a $1 million fine and $10 million fines looking at them in the face. You know, they, they form all these official complaint agencies of all talk and all inaction. <laughs> they would never support a political form of action like a new party to actually do something about their complaints. Like conservatives, they're the ultimate continual compromisers who not only unjustly harm others with these compromises, but justly harm themselves. 
Now, most computer spam I get is not commercial. It's just what I call crap. It has no purpose other than to harm others. There's no personal gain, financially speaking, on the part of the spammer. They don't care about anything other than causing others harm. And the feeling of false power over others is the only personal pleasure, again, not a gain, that requires rationality, that they get out of it. They're either sick or maybe they're evil. To their victims, this distinction, I think, is irrelevant, and these are the spammers that are worth going after, and I wish they would prosecute them as criminals, not as people sending email and spam. I object to the use of the word spam for Internet advertising. Well, me too. However, the commercial, quote, spam I get in my mailboxes is commercial. It has a purpose. There's a self-interest involved in the message, and 99 times out of 100, at least the stuff I get, because I've already, my my own program can filter out all the other stuff Mm -hmm. I didn't want. These so-called spammers have always offered an unsubscribe option of some sort, because they have a reputation to protect, and they want to continue doing what they are doing. Now, I've noticed I get spam on my cell phone, you know. Um, Last week I got a call on my phone from the 411 directory listing people on Freedom Party's office telephone number, and they went through, is your address still the same, blah, blah, and we went through the whole thing. And then the last question was, is that the same address to which we should direct our $650 listing invoice? (laughs) (laughs) I was never asked if I wanted to buy anything, and I said, good luck with that. Who, who, Who even lists anything in the day of the Internet, let alone on a 411 Uh, service. It was just amazing that they would even try that on me. So, you know, I'm thinking there's got to be an easy way to get around Canada's anti-spam laws, you know, just send something for free without a commercial component, which doesn't reveal itself until the recipient of the the message goes through one or two hoops later on. Um, Maybe use the prostitution principle in reverse, separate the financial transaction or solicitation from the act itself, you know, the exchange. I don't know. Make sure there are one or two steps that make it very ambiguous or impossible to directly connect the two things. You could maybe involve a third or fourth party at an arm's distance, as they say in law. But, you know, or or try and do it from outside of Canada? Well, maybe not, because that's not exactly where uh, the laws are going with this. But uh, I haven't even got to the outrageous part of this yet, Robert, and that comes after our break that we'll take now. First for a smile and then for an update. The lady you'll hear on the other side of our bumper is actually a spokesman from the CRTC explaining the legislation. We'll be back. Morning. Morning. What you got then? Well, there's egg and bacon, uh, egg, sausage and bacon, egg and spam, egg, bacon and spam, egg, bacon, sausage and spam. Spam, bacon, sausage and spam. Spam, egg, spam, spam, bacon and spam. Spam, 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 egg and spam. Spam, 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 bacon, spam, spam, spam and spam. Oh, lobster, thermidor, crevettes with a mornay sauce, garnished with truffle pate, brandy and a fried egg on top and spam. Have you got anything without spam in it? Well, spam, egg, sausage and spam. There's not got much spam in it. I don't want any spam. Why can't you have egg, bacon, spam and sausage? That's got spam in it. Not as much as spam, egg, sausage and spam. Look, could I have egg, bacon, spam and sausage without the spam? <laughs> what do you mean? I don't like spam. Spam, 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 spam,
So let's uh, talk a little bit about the main elements of the uh, legislation. In approximately 2004, a task force was convened uh, that was comprised of uh, industry sector, academia, uh, government agencies, law enforcement, subject matter experts, etc., to look at the problem of spam and malware at the time. This task force also looked at a number of uh, legislation in other jurisdictions, uh, international jurisdictions, to do some benchmarking. As a result, they put forward a report in 2005, which I believe is available at the fightspam.gc site, uh, and it provided 25 recommendations, among them that this be a civil regime, so that it be flexible uh, and responsive uh, to the current situation in a timely fashion. It also uh, laid out uh, a number of uh, new items, such as new violations, administrative monetary penalties, otherwise known as AMPs, and that the level of these administrative monetary penalties be such that uh, they were not just the cost of doing business, that they be uh, of such a level that there would be uh, some significant compliance uh, should they be levied. It also allows for domestic and international cooperation, and I think this is one of the most forward-thinking sections uh, of this new piece of legislation. Given that spam and malware and, and botnets are of an international global nature, uh, these particular uh, clauses in the legislation allow us to cooperate and assist and uh, information share with our foreign counterparts, our national counterparts, uh, as long as the uh, activities uh, of the particular violation or, or uh, potential violation be similar to those under CASEL. There are certain conditions that must be met. As a, for instance, there has to be an agreement in writing. There has, it has to deal with how the information will be uh, treated in a confidential nature, et cetera, et cetera. It's all laid out in the uh, legislation. But this will allow us to um, really tackle this problem on an international front. Uh, another section that I find uh, very important is that of extended liability. Not only does it allow us to follow the money, um, as it might be, but it allows us to pierce that corporate veil and hold directors and officers accountable uh, for their actions. It also uh, alleviates some of the previous problems we've had in enforcement where uh, a violation is laid against a particular corporation, numbered corporation, to have it just be a shell corporation and the, the director opens up a new company starting the next day and you're, we're unable to uh, levy the amps against them or collect the amps. As a support mechanism, we have the Spam Reporting Center, which will allow uh, consumers, Canadians, uh, to file a complaint and to submit their spam uh, and SMS spam and email spam samples um, for use in our enforcement activities by the three agencies. This particular spam reporting center is being um, operationalized out of the CRTC and will support all three agencies uh, in their enforcement mandate and indirectly uh, our national and international uh, counterparts. And that was the uh, spokesman from the CRTC, you know, which has become, I guess, increasingly useless with fewer people watching TV. It became necessary to justify their ex existence by expanding their, their mandate, eh? 
you know, when the CRTC rep we just heard uses the term a civil regime that is flexible and responsive, what that means to me is an uncivilized regime which in which all laws are subjectively and selectively interpreted and enforced. When she talks about international cooperation as being forward-thinking legislation, we must be reminded that this was all based on consultations and hearings that started way back in 2004. When, when Paul Martin was when Prime Paul Minister. When Paul Martin was in Prime Minister and on the technological issues of that day, which also seem like ancient times a decade ago. You know, you the way you just mentioned that, mm-hmm. it sound, reminded me of Ayn Rand when she uh, talked about the FCC in the United mm-hmm. States in 62. She called it government by intimidation. That's right. They're intimidating That's what they're doing. Because the law is not They're out there to objective. scare everybody. And when she speaks about piercing the corporate veil, follow the money and amps, which are administrative monetary penalties, remember that she's talking about sending a commercial email, which is sent by an honest person or a criminal alike. They don't make a distinction because it's all about complying with rules, not with the purpose of your email. Now here's the clincher. Who pays and how? Well, introducing Digital Canada 150. I never heard of that until I went online to check this out. Dated April 4th, 2014, the Government of Canada news release with the heading Harper Government Unveils Plan for Canada's Digital Future, which means your future, folks, outlines the five key principles under which this program will operate. One, connecting Canadians. Two, protecting Canadians. Three, economic opportunities. Four, digital government. Five, Canadian content. Sound familiar? Digital Canada 150 provides important funding, $36 million in total to repair, refurbish, and then donate computers to public libraries, not-for-profit organizations, and Aboriginal communities, giving students access to the equipment they need to take part in the digital world. The government will invest $300 million in venture capital for digital companies and $200 million to support small and medium-sized businesses with digital adoption. And we're already up to over half a billion dollars now, Robert. Industry Minister James Moore says in the same release, Digital Canada 150 is a plan to take full advantage of the digital economy as we celebrate our 150th anniversary in 2017. It's the next step to build our nation and connect Canadians with each other. They think they're building a railroad or something. And if you're wondering what the heck he's talking about, from the same media release, Anthony Wilson-Smith, president of Historica Canada, says, and listen carefully to this, we cannot properly know and understand our stories, our history, and each other unless we can connect with each other. This is the necessary starting point for everything else. Treasury Board Chairman Tony Clement says in the same media release, Digital Canada 150 is a plan to help Canadians harness the power of open data. Open data? What's that about? And adds Kitchener-Waterloo MPP Peter Braid, also from the same media release, Digital Canada 150 will shape the course of our country for years to come. That's for sure. Yeah. So, so much for freedom and self-determination. Heritage, culture, official languages, and state control and enforcement of each of them is the word of the day. Now, Robert, here's some of my predictions of where all this is going to lead to. I can see in the future, and not so distant future, that if you want to go online with a particular commu- computer or communication device, doesn't matter whether it's your cell phone, your old uh, you know, box still sitting on your desk, you will have to regularly submit that computer to an annual or some other scheduled government-imposed emissions test, much like we do so uselessly today with our cars, which are no longer necessary to do that. And they'll be checking for computer emissions. 
things like viruses, spams, email, those, those robot things that people might put on your computer that you don't even know are there and that can ha have you held liable for all of this stuff. If your computer doesn't pass for some reason, then you won't get your online access code. Much in the same way that Microsoft, you know, would make people go to get their operating system started. You'd have to go online doing the whole coding before your operating system would work. I can see them doing that very easily. Says CRTC representative uh, in a 47-minute video from the one I, we just heard, but there was another rep. And she said, we're going to work with the service providers out there in terms of, get this, a reduction in the number of infected electronic devices. If we can reduce the number of electronic devices, we can reduce the number of botnets that exist, which removes the m number of malware that gets disseminated throughout the various computers, PDAs, cell phones, etc., 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 and I emphasize the etc. The, the parallels to Agenda 21 uh, are unbelievable, I'm, I'm this you, Digital Canada you. 150. Oh, boy. So, and I think to the extent of the effectiveness of Castle, there will be an increased insecurity, if not paranoia, about doing anything online. Already businesses have been in a panic while consumers still have no clue what's in store for them because they are subject to these laws as is each and every use of any electronic communicating device from your telephone to your email. Nothing you do online is informal anymore. You have to keep evidence of everything for at least two years. You might not think that you're going to send a commercial message to a friend of yours, right? It would, didn't, wouldn't occur to you today. But two years from now, you might want to tell him, hey, there's a great deal going on down at Walmart or something, and you send it to him, just an acquaintance, and he, he doesn't, he doesn't want to get that message. Well, you better have proof that he was your, your acquaintance going back at least two years before you sent him that thing. And in the future, you know, anyone could be set up by people wanting to file lawsuits because starting in 2017, they're going to allow personal filing of lawsuits because they admit they can't handle the backlog of this. So it's going to be all privately done. Small businesses and new startups will have no legal way to, to use a push medium, which is what mail is, and email to promote their services or products or even to direct people to their websites. Their costs will skyrocket relative to what they're paying today. Again, assuming that Harper's Castle is effectively punitive. And, you know, I can see requirements in the future saying that commercial messages will have to be both in French and English, since bilingualism and mm -hmm. culture is all part of this. And I have a final concern about consent itself. You know, a lot of the so-called spam I've been receiving, I didn't mind receiving. I even kept a lot of them in specific folders that I thought I may re might refer to later. But I considered my acceptance of these emailers as my implied consent. But as a consenter who takes active, an active role in that consent, I'm no longer in control of that status. Now I have to take action myself to consent, and personally, I feel much more vulnerable once I've taken such action. I am now an active, not a passive participant in a practice that was not initiated by myself. For all I know, these people sending me the email, email might be terrorists someday in the future or something. And all of a sudden, I've consented to receiving their email, and then they can track me down, too, and I'm part of the, the whole network. You, can you see where all this is leading to? And on an individual basis, yes, the law is essentially unenforceable, and everybody knows it says Mannion Bom Bombardier, Chief Compliance and Enforcement Officer with the CRTC, as quoted in the June 19th Londoner by Jeffrey Reed. Quote, we don't have the capacity to look at all of the complaints, so we need to be strategic, she said. Our objective is to secure compliance in the most efficient way possible and prevent recidivism. 
That's why in 2017 they're making it economically desirable for individuals to sue others for sending them spam. While individuals are fighting it out in the courts, they can get on with a greater strategy. You know, this is a monstrous thing that we're dealing with here, Robert. It's scary. Um, it's, it's just a stunning thing, and it's true. It, it just fits right into your whole thing on Agenda 21. This is Agenda 150. Tell us about Agenda 21 as we go into it. Well, uh, yeah, we're going to cut to uh, some clips now by Lord Christopher Monckton, who was in London two years ago, March, uh, talking here at the university, actually, at Windermere Manor, at the invitation of the International Free Press Society. You were there, Bob, mm-hmm. as well as I, and I recorded the entire event on uh, video, which can be seen on our YouTube channel. It's the only recording uh, available of it. It's about 44 minutes long. Um, we're going to be playing about 15 minutes of it here today, and it is chilling. If you've never heard of Agenda 21, you're about to. Let's go to Lord Christopher Monckton. If you look, for instance, at what is about to happen, which is the Agenda 21 conference at Rio de Janeiro on the 20th anniversary of the Earth Summit, which launched the whole ghastly process of the global warming scare and the intergovernmental panel on climate change. Now they're having a big self-congratulatory jamboree, as usual, down in a nice exotic location with beaches and dancing girls and grass skirts and all the other accoutrements that uh, no scientist these days can be seen without. (laughs) There they will be, and they will be deciding... Uh, as they have been trying to decide for the last 20 years, that what we need to do is to shut down the West. That's how you can tell that this is essentially the communist agenda all over again. The communists of old would always start by trying to attack the soft underbelly of the West, which is, of course, our energy supply. Now this battle, even though the Soviet communism has now gone, and good riddance, is still being fought by those whom they planted in the West to fight it. Nobody seems to have told them that, hello, communism has gone. You now have the same type of people using the same type of rhetoric, but no longer carrying the baggage of the failed Soviet system. Now, under its rebranding, they're saying we need to pursue what the UN in its Agenda 21 document calls the sustainability agenda. And this new buzzword, sustainability, means you can't do anything if something might run out when you do it. That's it in a nutshell. Now, since we live on a planet from which few of us will have any chance permanently of escaping because the well of gravity is still too deep for us to claw our way out with any facility. We are dealing with resources, all of which are to some degree or another finite. Everything is running out, including sunlight. This just in. In four and a half billion years, the sun will burn itself out. So, no more sunbathing, because you're running us out of sunlight. <coughs> and they say that we're going to experience peak oil, peak fossil fuels, 
and everything from there on will be downhill. The fact that this is not true and will not be true for hundreds or even thousands of years does not matter. The fact is we have to fossilise everything as if they hate fossil fuels so much. This idea of fossilising everything in its place is very strange, but that's what they want. They want no change. They are, in fact, the new Conservatives. They want everything to be as it has always been. Go back to those lovely pictures of rustic Europe painted by the great Dutch masters, with men toiling up and down the fields, with pitchforks and building haystacks and, and uh, harvesting by hand, and it's all a very nice rural myth. But just imagine how many people would have to die in order to bring about that myth of sustainable development. And let's start with the number of people who are dying already because of the myth of sustainable development. If we go back this time to within the lifetime of some of us, the 1960s, when the ban on DDT came in. This was done in the name of sustainability, preserving the environment from the terrible wanton destruction that the release of DDT therein would inevitably cause. Now, of course, this was based, as all these scares are, on bogus science, but they succeeded in the left capturing this issue. They shut down all use of DDT worldwide and DDT at the point when they did this was just about to eradicate malaria altogether. Malaria was on its way out everywhere. Deaths worldwide had fallen to 50,000 a year. Bad enough, goodness knows. But a lot less bad than they had been when, for instance, most of North America was malarial in the, la in the 19th century. It isn't now because DDT was widely used and eradicated it. That could and should and would have happened everywhere else in the world had it not been for one book by one well-meaning but dopey scientist who got her science wrong, Rachel Carson. And she wrote The Silent Spring. And notice this was not a scientific title published in a peer-reviewed journal. It was an emotive title. And here began the process of emotionalising and making cuddly the killing of tens of millions of people. No longer would you have the jackbooted Nazis walking across the landscape as the Jews were slaughtered. Now you would have children slaughtered, a massacre of the innocents, the like of which, innocents, the like of which has never been seen. But this would somehow be all right because even if the children were dying, they were dying in the good cause of saving the planet. And what happened? From 50,000 deaths by malaria, before the ban came in, within five years, the deaths from malaria had rocketed again to a million a year. And they have stayed at somewhere around a million a year ever since. In fact, last year, one and a quarter million deaths. And yet, on September the 15th, 2006, Dr. Arata Kochi, the head of the UN's malaria program, announced that he would lift the malaria ban, the DDT ban. He said, in this field, science usually comes second and politics first. We will now take a stand on the science 
and the data. And he lifted the ban on DDT and announced that in future it would be once again the front line of defence against the mosquito. And what happened? Nothing happened. Children are the ones that malaria kills, so they continue to die a million plus every year because the left want them to. Because the left, for all the talk of caring, do not care about the little ones of our own species. And so there is your first clue as to what this sustainability agenda is all about. It is a ruthless depopulation agenda. The view is that there are too many of us on the planet and that unless something is done, there will be too many more. All our fellow species will one by one be wiped out and this would be bad news. And that, of course, was Christopher Monkton speaking here at the University of Western Ontario two years ago about Agenda 21. Now, Bob, before that talk, had you ever heard of Agenda 21? No, I hadn't. Neither had I. I didn't know what it was, and, and yet it's over 20 years old. And I'm certain that the vast majority of us have never heard of Agenda 21. And I'm also certain that when you hear the words Agenda 21, the first thing that comes to mind is another word, conspiracy. Conspiracy as in Area 51, or maybe Digital Canada 150. <laughs> yeah. You know, put a number after a word, and oh, that sounds conspiratorial. Of course, Area 51, that secret U.S. military proving ground, which is home to flying saucers. Conspiracy as in something to be dismissed out of hand without even learning about it because it sounds kooky. That's what people might think when they hear Agenda 21. But Agenda 21 is not a conspiracy of this nature. The words themselves were coined by the United Nations to refer to their environmental agenda for the 21st century. Agenda 21 is part of the Earth Summit of 1992, 22 years ago. It's an open conspiracy, if anything, which resulted in a 300-page document outlining the United Nations agenda for what they call sustainable development and as Moncton pointed out, that phrase, sustainable development, is Orwellian in its nature. It simply means sustainable communism. Now, the use of the word communism raises the hackles of many. The same group of people whose hackles may be raised by the use of the words Nazism or Hitler or even such positive-sounding words such as liberty or freedom. I remember at a, a Board of Education meeting, I once used uh, the word liberty or something like that, and one of the trustees actually put her finger in her mouth as if to throw up, right? Because I dared use such highfalutin sound philosophic words like liberty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, she was against it. Oh, uh, well, oh, actually, she was, yeah. You know, any ism word or any word which may connote a definite political philosophy is often associated with extremism. And there's another ism for you. This... I call it lexophobia, this fear of words or concepts, is a direct result of our public education system which has indoctrinated, another word to be feared, the past two generations since Stalin, Hitler, Mao, and Mussolini into believing that in order to prevent the rise of Nazism or communism, we should never speak these words again, and that those who do are agitators or crackpots, like you and me, Bob. Mm -hmm. Well, that's too bad. The ignorance of history is exactly what is returning us to a totalitarian state. This fear 
of words is detrimental to our political and our philosophic growth as a culture. Christopher Monckton is absolutely spot on when he suggests that the environmentalists of today are the communists of yesterday. The evidence is clear. Only today's communists have altered only slightly. Instead of labeling themselves as communists, they quite proudly call themselves socialists. As Andrea Horwath, or Horvath of Ontario's NDP did, Ayn Rand identified the difference between communism spoken of by Moncton and the socialism spoken of by people like Andrea Horvath. She identified it 52 years ago in a column she wrote for the Los Angeles Times. Quote, There's no difference between communism and socialism except in the means of achieving the same ultimate end. Communism proposes to enslave men by force, socialism by vote. It is merely the difference between murder and suicide. You know, with the exception of the communists of North Korea, the communists of the Soviet bloc and China have realized there is no need to force people into servitude if they're willing to vote themselves into it. The link between the old Soviet communists and the socialists today is also found in Agenda 21, which looks to an organization called Green Cross International. Now, Bob, you brought up Digital Canada 150, something mm. I'd never heard of. Here's something I bet you nobody's heard of before, Green Cross International. Agenda 21 relies on it to promote the sustainable environment of the United Nations. Green Cross International was created by former Soviet communist leader Mikhail Gorbachev. The website of Green Cross International says this about their history. Green Cross International's roots can be traced back to Gorbachev's time in uh, in, in office as head of the Soviet (laughs) Union, a period during which he spoke repeatedly about the interrelated threats humanity and our Earth face from nuclear arms, chemical weapons, unsustainable development, and the man-induced discrimination, or decimation rather, of the planet's ecology. So what are the goals of Green Cross International in terms we can understand once we realize what the term sustainable development really means? The goal is to distribute the wealth of the richer nations to the poor nations by force, i.e. taxation. You know, another ancillary goal, of course, is the disarmament of the West. Canada, by the way, has signed on to the principles of the 1992 Earth Summit and has a chapter of Green Cross International. On the board of directors for Green Cross International in Canada is... David Suzuki. Who else? <laughs> <laughs> a man whose ideas are about as far, list, far left as you can go without toppling over. Going to hear a little bit more now about Christ, from Christopher Moncton on Agenda 21, and we'll be back. I'll sum it up. So what is the truth? The truth which you will not hear spoken at Rio. The truth is quite different, as any demographer will tell you. If you have a population that is poor, it will tend to breed faster than a population that is rich. So if you keep a population poor, or by various policies, including those intended to improve so-called sustainability, you make a rich population poorer again, then you will increase the birth rate. If, on the other hand, you want to stabilize the birth rate of humankind, particularly in the poorer countries where the birth rate is greatest, there is one reliable as well as manifestly humane uh, way to do it, and that is to raise the standard of living of the poorest so that it comes up above the poverty line. And in every nation where this has been achieved, 
regardless of the availability or non-availability of contraception or baby butchering or all the other devices for interfering in nature's way. The population has tended towards mere replacement rate rather than rampant growth. And so the problem that I have, the central problem, with the Agenda 21 proposal, as it is put forward by the UN, in the documents which are now being treated by the totalitarian left as their new gospel, is that these documents would make the whole world poorer and would therefore paradoxically achieve precisely the opposite of the intended depopulation effect by bringing about an increase in the population of the very poorest and of course of humanity as a whole. So it's not just that the message of Agenda 21 is politically undesirable and prescriptive and dirigiste and centraliste and étatiste in the extreme. Funny how the French have all the words for this kind of thing. It is also, at the economic level, completely wrong-headed. What it will do is increase the human population, increase human misery considerably, and achieve precisely the opposite of whatever genuinely pious effect may have been intended, and that's a big stretch to assume that they did intend a pious effect, but let's pretend. It will simply vitiate any such pious intent by causing this huge increase in population. So how have we come to this pass? Go back to Imperial China. And early Imperial China first defined and meditated upon the fundamental divide in the politics of the world, which is a divide between what the Chinese called the legalists, we would call them totalitarians, socialists, national socialists, international socialists, communists, Marxists, fascists, they're all the same. The people who know better than we do how our lives should be run and wish to prescribe it down to the very last detail by force if necessary, including what kind of light bulb you can use. On the one hand, the legalists, and on the other, what the Chinese called the Confucians. Now anyone who has read the Analects of Confucius cannot but be impressed by the generosity of spirit that the great philosopher of ancient China displayed. And he was, you can see this in the way he meditates upon what is virtue and what isn't. He was a libertarian. He was a live and let live kind of guy. Don't interfere unless you really have to. Leave it to people to work it out for themselves. That was his philosophy. And they called that the Confucian philosophy. We would call it the free market philosophy. Freedom loving, democracy loving, liberty loving. The conservative philosophy, if you like. That is the central divide. And what is happening now is that the extreme legalist, or the extreme left, or whatever label you want to put, they 
have grown tired of democracy. It was once seen by some of them as a good thing. Now they see it as poison, because what it does is to give the individual the right to choose for himself what government he shall have, what laws shall be imposed upon him, and what taxes he shall endure. And they want to do that for us. So they don't want that liberty to exist any longer. And they want to take democracy away. They've already done it in Europe by setting up the European Union and with annual treaties transferring more and more power away from elected hands to unelected hands. And whatever other benefits may come of this, the loss of democracy in Europe is now near total. And it is European advisers who are telling the UN's Framework Convention on Climate Change how to use exactly the same techniques of annual agreements, they can't call them treaties because the US Senate, thank goodness, went past them, so as to transfer power inexorably away from free nations such as Canada towards the new centralist dictatorship worldwide this time with no chance of competition or extinction that they wish to create. You know, Bob, I, I really do enjoy listening to Christopher Monkton speak because he makes me want to measure the sound of each word yeah. <laughs> and the import of each word. Um, a great speaker, by the way, and that was a, a great talk that he gave here at the UWO. Um, he mentioned something about, I think, the solution of the whole thing. And since the evidence, I think, is abundantly clear that countries which have adopted a free market have stable or relatively stable populations and are vastly friendlier to the environment than countries with closed markets, i.e. socialists or communist countries, then it's blatantly obvious that protecting the environment, if that is your goal, and reducing the population, if that is your goal, certainly not mine, is not the intent or is not on the agenda of the framers of Agenda 21. The implicit goal is destruction, as Moncton says. Destruction of man, destruction of the environment, the evidence is clear. Destruction of the West, most particular. And destruction of freedom of the individual in favor of the collective. The chosen method of achieving the goals of Agenda 21 is, contrary to the international nature of the United Nations, not on a national level. As Moncton said, these aren't treaties. The methods... Um, used to promote their uh, Agenda 21 is the promotion of local groups, towns, and cities to begin the process, followed then by uh, provincial or state involvement, and lastly, national involvement. Local initiatives can be found in the windmills dotting our countryside, bringing down property values and increasing the cost of electricity to such a point that industry flees and people are quite literally left in the dark. Solar panels, taking over farmers' fields, yielding the most expensive electricity of all. So-called traffic calming, traffic calming measures. Little things like this all can trace their uh, roots or at least um, are supportive of the Agenda 21 agenda. Uh, traffic calming measures, you know what I'm talking about here, Bob, in neighborhoods designed to make tra car I, travel uh, by car totally inconvenient I've been and a hassle. I've been saying on this show for years how many of our local initiatives come out of the UN. Yeah. And, and people just scratch their heads. They don't get it. 
right? Well, go to Agenda mm-hmm. 21. And I think I'm, I'm going to be bringing this up some more as I learn more about Agenda 21 because it is a 300-page document. And uh, this Green Cross International intrigues me as well. I want to mm-hmm. see their influence and how much money they get from our government. Uh, it goes into Mr. Suzuki's pockets. Um, it, but these traffic calming measures are really uh, a bugaboo for me. I really dislike them so much. Apparently they don't calm you. <laughs> they frustrate <laughs> me. And they frustrate a lot oh, of people. You me, I'm one of them. You know, frustrate so much so, you know, that mass transit is supposedly more favorable now. That, that's what their intent is. Mm-hmm. It is to create uh, such a hassle for cars that you start to use mass transit. We've all encountered them before. You know, the curbs jutting out into traffic lanes, the speed bumps, the raised intersections, all designed not to calm traffic, but to make driving the car all that less attractive. Fits right in with Agenda 21. Mass transit schemes, like the ones proposed by the current Ontario government, to link the small communities of um, southwestern Ontario by high-speed rail to Toronto, (laughs) something which, of course, will cost billions and yield little in the way of advantage over travel by car. Uh, another one, increased gas taxes, mm. uh, government incentives to buy hybrid electric cars, the incandescent light bulb ban, which Christopher Monckton mentioned, the forestalling of the Keystone XL pipeline into the United States, massive bureaucratic hurdles to prevent alternatives to the Keystone pipeline, massive concessions to Aboriginals in the way of land grants. Uh, by the way, uh, Aboriginals um, have a very special uh, mention in Agenda 21 not just, of course, in Canada, but uh, all Aboriginal nations. Yeah. Um, basically, anything that Aboriginals want, uh, they are to be given, according to N- Agenda 21, to put it in a nutshell. All of these measures fit neatly into the Agenda 21 set of goals. All do nothing to save the environment. In fact, all harm the environment immeasurably, such as the dangers of hauling oil by rail, for example, uh, instead of uh, by the much safer pipeline route. The deaths in Lac Magantique could be directly attributed to the environment movement. All are so expensive as to drain money from those Western societies, making them relatively poor compared to the developed world, or developing world, sorry. To reiterate, the ultimate goal of Agenda 21 is to destroy the West. And they are succeeding. And we're helping them to do so. We are our own worst enemy when it comes to this environment stuff. Seems to be the the theme for the day. Well, Robert and I, we have our agenda too, and that's to continue our journey in the right direction, which is what we'll do again next week. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. See ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Come on, have egg, bacon, spam, and sausage without your spam. Why not? No! Dear, I love your spam. I love it. I'm having spam, 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 baked beans, spam, spam, and spam. Baked beans, Well, can I have spam instead? You mean spam, 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 